I introduced my old partner to the space, introduced him to the operator I was working with. He invested with them. So we formed a partnership and it was appealing to me because I thought, okay, if I'm going to go out and earn $200,000, pay $100,000 in tax to save $100,000, what if I could create $200,000 of equity of value through my hard work in identifying, finding a property, operating a property, and managing that? We closed on our first property in 2016, formed our partnership in 2015. The property is still owned today. It's done very well. But now you know, we've expanded You know, the operating team I work with now, over 30 people on the team. Um, over 3,000 units that we now have under management. This is the We Love Real Estate podcast. My name is Sean and I love real estate. In this weekly podcast, we interview the top real estate investors and professionals who share their knowledge and expertise to help you become a real estate investing boss. So if you love real estate and want to level up your investment game, then you've come to the right place. And now, on to the show. What's going on, investors, and welcome to episode 266 of the We Love Real Estate Podcast with Sean Pan. On today's show, we have Chris Larson. Chris is the founder and managing partner of Next Level Income and a former medical device professional. Chris has been investing in and managing real estate for over 20 years. In this episode, Chris will talk about how he was able to purchase his first real estate property at the age of 21 and how he was able to transition from residential to commercial real estate. He'll also talk about the pros and cons of the different types of assets that they currently own, strategies on how to build a successful team, and how to raise funds for his projects. So if you want to learn how to get started and learn more about commercial real estate, then you need to listen to this episode. As always, if you're an active real estate investor and you need a hard money loan for your next project, then you can reach out to me directly at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Enjoy the show and I'll see you next week. All right, Chris, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself, let us know who you are, and tell us what you do. Sean, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yes, yeah, so we're going to talk about real estate today. I've been doing real estate now for over half my life. I'll be, I'm 43. I bought my first property at 21. And, you know, I was in college. I was racing my bike. I actually went to college for biomechanical engineering. And I knew about two weeks in that I didn't want to be an engineer. I just wanted to race my bike. So I went to class as little as possible. I rode my bike as much as possible. I did that for my first two years. But my best friend, my college roommate, training partner, he passed away, had a massive brain hemorrhage and died in between my freshman and sophomore year. So I raced another year, came back to school. And I just, I talk about this in my book, which if you're listening, you can get it on our website, nextlevelincome.com. Click on the book link. I'll send you a copy. If you put your address in, I go through this whole story and I was winning races and it was unfulfilling. It was kind of silly to think here I am riding my bike around in a circle and spending 20, sometimes 30 hours a week training, not going to parties, no girlfriend, wouldn't drink. I wouldn't even take Advil, wouldn't drink coffee. Like I was like, you know, that doesn't mean I wasn't having a good time from time to time, but I was so dedicated to the sport and I realized there was so much more to life. So I came back after racing all summer, I'm away from school, my junior year, my grades were terrible after the year my friend passed away. Um, I was quite depressed, so I didn't do great in school. And I quit the sport that I'd done you know, for really my entire adult life at that point, from 14 to 20. And I was kind of floating around in the sea of life, if you will. And I said, you know what? I'm going to live every day to the fullest. And if you're in America, if you're anywhere in the world, to do that, you need financial power. You need financial independence, really. So I started learning about the stock market. It was the 90s, so it's a lot like today. The stock market was crazy. I started day trading. So I'm a junior in college. I'm making $5,000 a month day trading. But I'm like laying there one night with my eyes open in bed, 3 a.m., hadn't slept. I get up, I drink like a Red Bull, 
And it's like four in the morning. My heart rate's like a hundred beats a minute. I'm thinking like, what stock do I sell? I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I can't live like this. Like 20 years from now, if I have kids, a family, like that's not financial independence, right? So I started reading as many books as I could on investing. I read 250 books on finance, investing, got an MBA, almost a PhD in finance and portfolio management. And during that period, I went to several real estate meetings, bought my first property, as I mentioned, bought another one. And I thought, you know what? Real estate is more my speed. And what I liked about it from an engineering perspective, I could control the buy price. I could control the value through operations and improvements. And I could also use leverage and there was a lot less volatility. So it was very predictable. And what I realized was I'm a planner and with the lower volatility, I could really plan for the future and kind of map out how I was going to increase my income over time. That's so interesting. So you actually had a life as a biker, which is a very you know, interesting job in itself, but you said even that was unfulfilling. How did you feel like real estate fit that piece for you? Like why real estate out of, I mean, you mentioned volatility, but again, why real estate versus anything else you could have done? Yeah. So I think really, really, Sean, I really love the idea of investing. I love deals. I love analyzing deals. I really, you know, like I said, I, I said, I didn't want to be an engineer, but I do like to analyze numbers. I like information. I spent almost 18 years in the medical device industry. I loved it because I got to look at, you know, the clinical data behind a procedure and also look at the mechanical workings of a specific implant materials and those sorts of things, and then figure out what the best outcome was. And investing is the same way. It's all these variables. You have time, you have macroeconomics, microeconomics, you have the economics of, for instance, in real estate of the property, right? The demographic information, all of these variables. And I really enjoy looking at all that, distilling the information down and ultimately making a decision. So I really enjoy that process and doing that. And cycling was the same way for me. It's a very complex sport. So it's a team sport. People think it's an individual sport because if you look at it, you know, it's one person riding a bike, but it's a team sport, but it's also mechanical, right? So you have this amazing machine, like bicycles cost more than motorcycles. I have bicycles that cost five figures. My, the bike I just bought cost more than my first car, which was a nice Honda Accord. So you have this amazing technology, the training, you have power meters, you have, you know, a little computer on your bike now that measures your heart rate. It measures your power output, the amount of calories that you're putting out. And now you even have like what I'm wearing on my wrist that I know people can't see. Um, but you can, you know, it measures my, my heart rate, my HRV, my sleep, so I can optimize my training. I love all these different things that you can do and you can tweak these 1%. And that's what I really love. You know, things where you can take a percent here, a percent there, you add it all up. And next thing you know, you've made a 10% improvement and 10% over a long period of time, which investing is over a lifetime adds up to massive gains. Yeah. And that's the thing about real estate versus like you mentioned, day trading or stock trading you don't have as much control over those other assets. Whereas real estate, because you have so much control, you do you know, control the output. And I guess that's why you know, real estate is great for someone like yourself who is very meticulous on all the different parts. Yeah. And uh, look, I'll tell you what, it's not, I, I say like what we do, we, our big focus is multifamily. I tell investors this almost every day. I said, think of us like the Warren Buffett of real estate. And you know what? We're about as sexy as Warren Buffett. You know, you buy a multifamily property, it's kind of boring. You know, you got two or 300 residents that are paying you you know, month in, month out, you increase rents, maybe a hundred, maybe $200. If you, you know, make some nice improvements, it's predictable, but you look at Warren Buffett, he's doing pretty good, even though he's not that sexy. So, you know, it's a lot less exciting than gambling or day trading, but 
again, you can, with that lack of volatility, and we can talk about that, you know, when you lower volatility, you actually increase gains. So, you know, that's another reason I, I like real estate as well. So can you talk about how you got your first property? Because you mentioned you were still in college when you did it. Yeah. And that's very impressive. Like most people don't buy real estate while still in school. Yeah. So it was a little luck. It was a little, you know, again, I kind of had this external shock to my life, right? With my friend. So I really, I really had a mental shift and I was reading, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell. And he talks about children that lose their parents at a young age, how they tend to go on and be more successful. And I thought about this a lot over the last 10 years as I approached the same age as my father when he died, 41. And what I kind of came to the conclusion, if you think about the value of time, so you have the number of days left you know, that you're going to live as the denominator, right? And you have the value on top. If time is infinite as a denominator, value goes to zero, right? Every day is kind of like, yeah, I got another day to live. No big deal. I'll just wait till tomorrow. As soon as you place a value on that denominator, on the time you have left, whether it's 10,000 days, 1,000 days, 100 days, 10 days, 10 hours, the value goes up exponentially. So I think as a child that lost a parent, I knew inherently, like essentially my entire life, as far back as I could remember, that time was finite and I needed to get something out of life. And when my friend died, it was like, he's 18. What if I don't live another year? Like, do I really just want to spend the year raising my bike and riding my bike? So it really put a lot of pr like this kind of internal, but also this external pressure on me that led me to kind of look for these opportunities. So how did I get that first property was your question. So that's kind of the why, why I was looking, why my brain was open to the opportunity. But there was a property for sale and I started thinking about different opportunities. There was a property for sale up the road and I hadn't signed the renewal on the property that I was renting. And the landlord was giving me some issues. There was like some stuff that was broken and some different things. And I hadn't signed the lease. This property goes on the market. I looked at it and I called my mom and I said, hey, I want to buy this property, but I, I didn't have any credit, right? So I was what, 21 years old. I think I had a credit card, but I didn't really have any real credit. So I had the money, the down payment, which it's nice with FHA loan. It was like $3,000. So my mom said, yeah, like, let's do it. Because they owned a few just small rental properties. So she co-signed on the loan. It cost me out $3,000. It was a $90,000 three-bedroom townhouse in Blacksburg, Virginia. And I rented two of the bedrooms to my friends, and I lived there rent-free. I ended up making friends with my neighbor next door when they were ready to sell because I knew they were getting to the point where they were going to graduate. Um, I was a junior when I bought that property. We were about the same age. When they decided to sell that property, they came to me and said, hey, do you want to buy it? Bought the place next door. So I basically had my own little six bedroom apartment, if you will. And I rented out five of those units. And with the tax benefits, I was making money every month living there. So that was, that was how I got started. And then I leveraged that and bought my next property and another and another. But I ran out of capital pretty quick, Sean. So I had to go get a job. And that's how I ended up in the medical device industry. I see. So when you got the second property, did you also use another FHA loan to then buy the second one? I believe I did. I do, I do recall it was a little bit more money down, but, uh, I can't recall exactly. I, I don't think it was an owner-occupied loan. And credit was decent back then. Now, interest rates were fairly high. Like the interest rates on those properties were 6 or 7%. That um, was in the late 90s. Whereas, you know, as you got a little bit further into the 2000, obviously rates an hour, you know, people are like 7%. That's crazy. So, uh, but yeah, I don't think the second one was an FHA loan, but the first one was. Got it. And you mentioned also that, you know, you ran a capital pretty quickly, so you have to go get a job. And I think that's the challenge that a lot of people have, right? They've gone through their first real estate deal, like, oh my God, it's so easy. I bought it. And then I bought another one. And then, oh, I ran out of money. 
So then you have to find other ways to do it, right? They have to work harder at the job, do some side hustling, or maybe even start flipping and wholesaling. Like that's what I did personally. But ultimately, I guess at some point you decided that, you know, working and getting capital that way is maybe not as efficient as going out to raise money. So when did that transition happen for you where you started to raise private funds? Yeah, so it took me too long. So if you're listening, this is why I wrote my book. I wrote my book to help everyone else shortcut what I did. And I had a lot of people that helped me along the way. And when you look back, you know, just like you, you look back, Sean, you're like, oh, if I did this, this, and this, I would have been more successful or I would have, you know, been able to do this faster. So please read the book. Don't make all the same mistakes I did. But the first step in my plan was go out, buy enough properties that I had $10,000 a month net coming in. And that would be before debt service. So my plan was, hey, I have $10,000 a month after management and maintenance and vacancy. Then all I have to do is pay the properties off and I'll have $10,000 a month. And then all I have to do is get a job where I make enough money to pay those properties off over the next you know, 10 or 15 years. And I also wanted to be accredited because I read Rich Dad Poor Dad and I thought I want to be accredited. I want to have access to these other investments. So I went from making uh, less than $20,000 a month while I was just coming right out of school to making 20 times that you know, by the time I was 30, a little bit over 30. And I just started to pay down those properties. But then a few years... Wait, sorry. What's that? You said $20,000 a month? I went from making 20... I'm sorry, 20000 a year. Okay. <laughs> I was like, 20000 a month after school is pretty good. Yeah. And then I, you know, I, I did well. You know, I was making 10, 20, you know, even more times that you know, later on in my career. So it was easy to start pay down that debt. But what I realized was now, after I put my head down, I'm doing well, I'm sticking to my plan, the equity of my properties had grown. So that $90,000 property that I put $3,000 into that was now worth almost $190,000, I had like $100,000 of equity in that property. Well, I was making like $3,000 a year. Not bad if you put $3,000 down, right? That's 100% return. So now I was making like six, seven, eight thousand dollars a year. I was averaging a seven percent return pre-tax. And I lost all my tax benefits because I was making too much money. So I thought, well this is like this is dumb. I have an MBA in portfolio management and I'm making seven percent pre-tax, four percent post-tax on my real estate investments. I'm not very good at what I'm doing. So I started looking at other alternatives. And that's when I decided to pivot from residential to commercial real estate. And that was in uh, late 2012, my wife and I made that decision between, uh, and now the market bottomed hard, right? Like it hit bottom in 2012. Um, my wife and I were looking at different opportunities and kind of the light bulb moment, Sean, was my wife's an architect. She went to school longer than I did. And after both my boys were born and my wife went back to work that first year, we lost $11,000 with her working. We would have made 11000 more if she stayed home. So we sat down at the end of 2012 and said, all right, I said, would you like to stay home? She's like, no, I want to work. I said, great. I respect that. I'd love that for you. So we need to figure out a better way to do it. So she started her own architecture practice and we started building spec homes. The problem was no banks would lend to us back then. So this is 2013. So I said, all right, we're going to sell. We're going to start selling off our, our rental properties. We're going to roll these into multifamily syndications. And we're going to build a spec house once a year. So it took my wife a long time. She called over 30 banks. And over the course of that first year, we found uh, a property to buy and build our first spec home. And she called like the 32nd or 33rd bank in Asheville, the last one on the list. And they said, we just started doing spec home loans again. That's a pretty good sign that the market's turned around. So between building spec homes, 
um, selling off the residential portfolio, we were able to start investing in those multifamily properties. Um, so again, it's still all of our own capital um, that we were using at that point. And we did that until 2016. So when you said you're investing in these multifamily uh, properties, are you investing as an LP in this point? Or is it just like your own portfolio? You're buying your own multifamily properties for yourselves? Great question. So we were investing in bigger deals as an LP because I was working 60, 80, sometimes 100 hour weeks still at this point. So I was kind of in the prime of my career. But yes, yeah, so I was like, I don't want to do anything else. So it was entirely as an LP at that point. So I'm also curious too, because we're probably in the similar situation as you guys were 10 years ago, right? Like my wife and I, we have around 30-ish units across our portfolio, spread across the country. But in my mind, I'm still having a hard time getting into a syndication as an LP, right? For me, I'm like, well, if I want to get into it, I want to be part of the GP or I'm going to own the property myself. What was like, going through your head that says, okay, I'm okay with giving this person 50000 or 100000 to be an LP in a syndication? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So you have to think about it from a couple different perspectives. So if you're at this point, like you are, Sean, and you said, hey, okay, I can invest as an LP, but I, I'd really like to be a GP. Like, let's say, you know, you're experienced, you have a lot. I had, I had as much or more experience than the operators that we started investing with initially in the multifamily space, but not in multifamily. So I said, well, I'm going to invest with them, but I'm going to learn as much as I can. So I invested with different GPs, with different operators, and I, I watched the way they did things, figured out how they got into markets. And ultimately, when we started doing our own deals, my first partner and I, we partnered with one of those GPs as well to do that. So if you're interested in getting into GPs, and by the way, I'm invested with several other partners, with several general partners that I don't have a GP interest in as well. So I still invest in other deals as an LP because I want to have access to different asset classes, or maybe we have a capital event or liquidity event, and I want to put that money back to work in a certain time period. So I'm, I'm happy to do that. Maybe I want to be invested in a market that we don't operate in. Okay. So I invest in all our deals, but I also invest in other people's deals. So I think the key is you want to invest with people, with operators that you can learn from if you want to move down that GP route. And that's what I tell investors that tell me that. I said, look, invest with us, ask me a lot of questions and figure out if it's something that you want to do. It's a really easy way to get basically a free education and get a return along the way. Okay. So I guess, how long were you doing that for? Like how long were you investing in other people's LPs before you decided to you know, take on the role yourself as a GP? Yeah. So started the process. It was about a four-year period. We started that process and then ultimately we syndicated our first deal in 2016. So I got into real estate in around that 2016 timeframe. I listened to a lot of podcasts. You know, one of the most interesting ones for me personally was Grant Cardone's podcast on like bigger pockets, right? Yeah. First time hearing that guy, I'm like, oh my God, it sounds amazing. And you learn more about syndications. You start learning about these different people who are out there like Joe Fairless and, you know, other big characters. Yep. Yeah. I was just with Joe last week. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, you know, from that, I would say like 2018, that's when I think the multifamily hype, it was at its all-time peak. Even now, it's really, really popular right now. And so you see a huge influx of people trying to become GPs and trying to do their own syndications. I guess, how have you seen the market change since that time frame? Yes. So we're wading into kind of a different conversation here. If you ask me, this is the conversation of real estate cycles. So I grew up in a family where both my parents at one time worked in the real estate industry. This was in the early nineties. They were both working for a company called JD Construction. So some people might be listening and remember Jimmy Dean Sausage. You might even know it, but Jimmy Dean, he was on TV, had a hat. Jimmy Dean Sausage had a construction company. My parents were working for him. Savings and loan crisis happened. They both lost their jobs. Poof. My mom went back to be um, an assistant teacher. My stepfather uh, went back to be a contractor. And I'm like, well, that sucked. You know, you're like looking at it. So you have that in your head. And then the stock market goes up, 
9-11 happens, there's a pullback, you know, the markets kind of go down. Real estate markets went down as well. I already owned real estate at that point. So I saw what happened 10 years prior. I saw what happened again in 2000. Obviously, I saw what happened in 2008, 2009, as, as did you, even if you didn't own any property at that time. It was, a, it was you know, and no one could, could forget it if you were 10 or older, probably. And we're back again, you know, about 20 years later. And we're at this point where it's like we were in the residential market in, you know, 2003, 2004, 2005. But people have now discovered multifamily. So I think it's still a wonderful asset class. But people are jumping in and what happens is, you know, they're bidding up the properties, especially kind of on the lower, smaller end of the spectrum. So if you take the first kind of properties, we bought a couple of properties, they were under $10 million built in the seventies. And those are very reasonable sized properties to buy. And when we were initially buying Sean, you know, you can get cap rates like six or 7%. You know, you're seeing four something on those same types of properties which is incredible because we're buying, you know, brand new properties at a similar cap rate that are in a higher quality market. So I think, you know, if you are in LP, you have to be wary of those sorts of things. And also as a GP, because if you're looking to GP a deal initially, you don't have to have a great first deal, but it sure better be a really good first deal. You don't want a ho-hum first deal because you came in at that. So I think it's, it's a time to be fully vested but also be cautious of some of the froth in the market and some of the, especially in certain markets. And so how does one go about vetting their sponsors for these syndications? Great question. We're actually putting together a course here to do just that. So if you're interested, you can just shoot me an email at chris at nextlevelincome.com. Um, we go through a six-week week course on how to, you know, why I get into a syndication, how to vet sponsors. But you want to place this above almost everything else. So what I mean is after you've decided what your strategy is. So Sean, if you're like, hey, I want to invest in the multifamily space. Okay, you have a good reason for why you want to do that. You then want to vet your operators second because you know if the market's great, if the multifamily is great, but you have an operator that can't operate well or doesn't understand how to underwrite a property, you're in for a bad ride. You need to bet on the jockey, so to speak. Okay, so how do you do that? Number one, you could listen to podcasts. You talk to people. Um, so you'd say like, hey, like I just said, I invest with other operators. So Chris, who else do you invest with and why? Okay. So let people tell you that are experienced. The easiest thing to do, like I was saying in my book, is learn from other people's mistakes. So just ask questions. Say, hey, Chris, you've been investing in this space now for, oh, geez, nine years. Who do you invest with? And then ask why. That's a really easy way to do that. When you find an operator that you like, you know, just write down all the stuff and then say, okay, can I send you another deal? Maybe send them a deal. So I have my coaching clients send me deals and they say, Hey, what do you think about this deal? What do you think about this market? Okay. So you want an operator that you hopefully know, maybe you have a referral from in some way, shape or form. Uh, number two, you want an operator who's experienced, you know, that's done it right. That's gone full cycle with, with some deals. They can say, Hey, here's a deal that I've done. This is how it's performed. And also I prefer to work with people that have made mistakes, right? Like I can tell you about bad deals either that I've been a part of, I've invested in and why they're bad deals and do that. You want people that are upfront about that. You also want an operator that's humble and understands they're always trying to learn and figure that out. Then you want to move on to the geography. So you want to ask an operator, what geographies do you invest in and why? And you want to go through that process. I wrote, um, there's articles up on my blog about how to identify like the next hot markets and do that. And I walk through kind of some of my process. I also talk about it in my book about how you can follow demographic trends and understand that. 
the last thing you want to evaluate is the deal. That's the very last thing. You want to talk to operators, learn the strategy, pick your markets before. And then ultimately, when you see deals, you want to eliminate a deal. You don't want to pick a deal. You want to eliminate deals until one comes out of the bottom and rises to the top, so to speak. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it seems like very similar to all aspects of real estate investing, where referrals are probably the best way to find good people. Well, yeah, I mean, that's why it's kind of scary when you go on these online platforms and you don't really know too much about the operators or about the location. You just see the picture of the property with the projected returns, but you're like, well, I don't know anything else about this. So yeah, I guess do your own due diligence. It's very important. Yeah. And, and to be fair, like, um, you know, there are platforms out there that you can invest in, right? Like some crowdfunding platforms, and you're basically paying that platform to get access to vetted, curated operators. So there's a value there. But the thing is, you're, you're actually, you know, you're paying for that. It's essentially like paying a money manager, you're paying somebody to manage your money, you know, you're typically giving up a couple percent to have access to those operators. And going back, can you kind of give us a story of how you transitioned from like a residential investor into commercial? Like, why did you do that? And also like, what was that transition like? Yeah. So I introduced my old partner to the space, introduced him to the operator I was working with. He invested with them. He ended up leaving his corporate role and he had uh, some 1031 family money. He also had some money that he had from some other stuff. I had some money and he said, Hey, I'd like to partner with the operator we're working with and buy a property because you know, he looked at our skill set. He looked at their skill set. He said, I think we can do this and we can do it well. So we formed a partnership and it was appealing to me because I thought, okay, if I'm going to go out and earn $200,000, pay $100,000 in tax to save 100000 what if I could create $200,000 of equity of value through my hard work in identifying, finding a property, operating a property and managing that? So, you know, that was kind of the appeal for me. And then uh, we did our first deal in 2016. I was also getting a little burned out in the medical uh, device arena. Like I said, I was, I mean, I could tell you some kind of horror stories about the hours I worked and, and different things, but um, industry was very good to me. So I'm not, I never would complain about that, but I worked at like six days a week, 16 hours a day as I was working in that business and then also building our real estate business as well. And the goal was initially, the goal was to get to $50 million in assets under management within a three-year time period. And we hit that almost right on the nose. We closed on our first property in 2016, formed our partnership in 2015. Like I said, that first one was done with another operating partner that had experience that we had both invested with. That property is still owned today. It's done very well, but now you know, we've expanded You know, the operating team I work with now over 30 people on the team, um, over 3,000 units that we now have under management. Can you talk about how you spoke to the sponsor who's already experienced and I guess convince them to partner with you guys? Because I mean, if someone's really experienced, why would he go out of his way to bring on new people to a partnership? Well, it was, it was easy because they had a mentorship program. So you pay them for the mentorship program and then they take a portion of the asset management fee when you partner with them. So they, they actually do a phenomenal job in that. And it was, yeah, so it was, it was very symbiotic when it came to that. And there are, there are like, we don't, I don't do that. Like I have coaching clients, but I don't coach specifically in multifamily syndication, but there are syndicators out there that you can work with and partner with to go find deals. And I, listen, I don't, I don't care what you're doing. I think it's always smart to have a coach, have a mentor. Like I would rather give up a hundred percent of the profit and learn all the right things to do. You know, whether it's a job, whether it's you know buying a property, whatever it is, then take the risk of investing you know my money, other people's money, and then make those mistakes and potentially you know 
there's, there's always potential downside risk, but you want to limit that downside risk. Absolutely. What would you say is your role in that partnership when you first got started? Yeah. So first starting, it was like a little bit of everything, you know, when there's two of you and you're trying to find deals and you're underwriting deals and you're talking to investors and, you know, you're meeting with brokers. I mean, you're either both there or one's there and then one's one somewhere else. And, you know, over time, you know, I, I spent 12 years on call. Okay. So 12 years, my phone on, you know, at, at least every other day calls at 5 a.m., 11 p.m., 3 a.m., you know, in the hospital. So I did a lot of operating, not operating in the operating room, but a lot of like operations, logistics and all that. So what I came to realize is I'm good with my experience and time that I've spent in that. And I like to let other people do the operations. Now, I still, as I mentioned at the top of the show here, Sean, I love to look at the numbers. So I love to analyze a new market, a new asset class. I love to look at the underwriting see if it makes sense, if the plan makes sense. And then I really found that I love to communicate that process to people and kind of, you know, share the experience with other people, with new investors. So I've gravitated more and more over the past few years uh, to an investor relations role. I'm still on site at every property that we buy. You know, I go through all the asset management um, at, a, at a high level with our team, you know, on a, on a monthly and quarterly basis with the financials. Um, but I really enjoy communicating. And what that relates to is when I was in the operating rooms with surgeons, when I was working in the medical device industry, I wasn't the engineer. I wasn't building the sets, but I was there communicating how to use them properly and looking for ways to help the surgeon improve the process for a patient outcome. And that's what I do now. I try to figure out ways that I can help investors improve their, inter their returns and their ultimate outcomes. And how do you go about raising funds, especially for your very first deal when you have no quote unquote experience with managing a multifamily property? Yeah. So I think, you know, a lot of people might argue with this, but when you start out the old fashioned way, it works really well. So face to face phone calls, telling people what your plan is and, and saying, Hey, you know, you need people that you trust, you know, that buy into you, right. That have similar interests. So I'd say, Hey, Sean, we're looking at buying a hundred unit property. For instance, we're going to be raising a few million dollars from investors. I know you invest in properties. I just wanted to see if that's something you'd be interested in hearing more about and say, yeah, that'd be great. So you basically build an interest list and this, this should be your close family, friends, you know, first degree relationships that know, like, and trust you. So it's very like, it's a triad, right? They need to know you number one, they need to like you, and then they need to trust you. So, you know, you have to build that trust over time or those people already have it, you know, communicate the overall strategy. You don't have to have the property, you have to have that strategy. Then when you have something, then you can communicate that to them. But the key is I would look at it like a year long process. So let's say you're buying the property, closing on the property and need all the money on the bank. All, I'm sorry, all the money in the bank a year from now, you should probably start today because you know, if you put a property under contract, Maybe you have three months to close. You probably, you know, give yourself six months to talk to people before you have a property under contract. You have three months to go through the due diligence process, get the money in the bank, and maybe another three months if you need to clean up some things and make that happen. And our first deal, it took us about a year to raise all the funds that we needed for it. I think the challenge people make is they say, hey, I have people interested in investing $5 million. That's great. I would say if people swear on their child's life, that they're going to invest $100,000, that's worth probably about 50. It's worth about 50%. So, you know, if, if you need $2 million, 
you better have hard, like pretty firm commitments for 4 million if you're buying that first property. So again, you know, make plans, put the uh, long-term plan in place, and then make sure you have contingency on the back end. Just like, right, one of your properties, Sean, you know, you have a contingency budget, just like when we built this house, we had a contingency budget in there, make a nice big contingency budget. Because when it comes to investors, there's a lot of things that can happen. People get sick, boat ramps need to be replaced, kids go to college, people lose jobs, people get divorced, other deals come along, you know, in the meantime. So there's a lot of variables out there. You just have to be conscious of that. And listen, the investor is always right. You know, if investor doesn't want to invest, then there's really nothing you can do about it aside from call the next one on the list. If you're out there trying to do this while working a full-time job, were you ever concerned that your management at the time would say something or be concerned that you are doing this? Yeah. So I think no matter what you do, I think you have to be comfortable that there's no conflict of interest, right? So, you know, an appearance of conflict of interest is not necessarily a conflict of interest and you have to be at peace with that. And if you're doing the right things, then you don't really have anything to be worried about. I never had a conflict of interest. I was always a top performing territory. I was working my butt off and then I would do this in my spare time. Okay. So, you know, and then I ended up having a lot of investors that I worked with either, you know, doctors, medical device reps, or even people with my own company that ended up investing with me. I did get the question one time uh, from somebody very high up in the company and they said, Hey, we're, you know, we're kind of concerned about this. I had gone from working as a 1099 contractor. So I didn't really have, you know, a true conflict of interest in that role to an employee because the company acquired the company that I was working for. And they, they said, no, we don't do 1099. And when, when that individual you know, said, hey, there's some concern around this real estate, you know, some of your real estate dealings, what I explained was, I said, listen, I don't have to be here. I have all the money I need coming in. I'm financially independent. I said, so you know I'm here for the right reasons. And I explained to him that he, he was a triathlete. I raced bicycles. I said, I spent more time racing my bike and riding my bike than I do on these endeavors. And it's all on my own free time. You know, I said, I don't watch football. I get up early in the morning. I work before, I work late, I work Saturdays. And I said, if there's a concern about my performance, I said, then I am happy to address that. But I had a top performing territory. And listen, if your number one goal is to be the vice president or the president of a company, focus on that. If your number one goal is to be a real estate investor, to be a syndicator, then figure out a way to maintain the performance in what you're doing because reputation is everything, and figure out a way to do that. And what I did was I worked six days a week, 16 hours a day, and that's what I did. So people didn't question my work ethic. I was always there. I always performed. And people, what the question I got more often than, hey, what are you doing on the side was, how do you do it all? That was the question I got. And then I was able to teach people you know, the skill set that I had built to become more efficient and that actually provided a lot of value to my team and others that I'd worked with. Awesome. And so right now you guys are doing multifamily, you have self-storage, mobile home parks, and you said you just bought two car washes. So I guess, can you give us like a, a pro and cons list of each of these different asset types and why someone should invest in one versus the other? Yeah, it's a great question. So listen, I'm a huge believer in multifamily. That's where the bulk of our investment is. So you know, I'm always happy to tell people you know, where I have my money. If you're going to scale, if you're going to scale into other asset classes, it's all about the operating team. You have to make sure that you have a solid operating team. So I'm not the one that's on site managing the multifamily properties every day. I'm not the one on the self-storage and the car washes and the mobile home parks, right? So 
you have to have a team that scales around it. There's not two of us anymore, right? There's more than two dozen. There's three dozen of us that are, that are doing all these things. These asset classes are going to move in different directions at different times in the cycle. So multifamily is typically, like I said, it's kind of like Warren Buffett, right? It's slow. It's steady. It's not that sexy. The returns are stable. We're buying properties with in-place cash flows. So they're inherently going to be less risky, right? Because you have cash flow coming in every month from day one. Self-storage is very similar in terms of demographics, especially with the geographies that we're buying to multifamily. So self-storage is kind of, you know, it's a little different than multifamily. You have lower rents each month. So those rents are a little stickier. Instead of raising rents $200 a month, you might raise rents $10 a month, you know, so you have a little bit better pricing flexibility there. Also, if you look at multifamily, the large projects that we're buying, Sean, 75, 80% are owned by big institutions. Okay. Not private players like us, you know, less than 20%, especially in the big stuff we're buying are owned by private players. Self-storage, there's a little bit more opportunity because those ratios are flipped. So you have about 75% are owned by like what we would call mom and pops or private operators. It's the same thing in mobile homes. I would say mobile homes, for me, fill that space that we were talking about earlier that I don't play in anymore, which is like the 70s built, quote unquote, affordable housing and multifamily that's gotten really bid up over the past few years. Mobile homes tend to perform very admirably in downturns. And the reason is they're affordable. $300 for lot rent, almost anyone can afford that, whether you're on a fixed income, whether you're working you know, as, as a laborer in a factory, and you can actually own the home that you live in, which is nice. So if you own that home, you're more likely to continue to pay you know, that lot rent, whereas in an apartment, you can just move out, move across the street, you know, move to another city and do something like that. It's hard to move a mobile home that costs $20,000, $25,000 when it costs $5,000 and lot rents say two fifty. dollars for instance. So it's, it's very, it's nice and stable and we improve these communities. We provide a better place for people to live in. So those are kind of like, you know, those three segments. If you look at car washes, it's different. We're, those are businesses. So the car wash space, sure, it is a real estate play, but it's an operational play. And our model with self-storage, with mobile homes and with car washes, they're all value add, but they're also we're providing value from a package. So we're a smaller private operator that has large buying power because we have hundreds and hundreds of investors and we can raise tens of millions of dollars per deal. So we're able to go in and buy properties that other groups might not that are bigger than us and package them together. So we are putting together portfolios of self-storage, of mobile homes, of car washes, and we're able to get efficiencies from doing that. We're able to put better operating teams in place because of that. And ultimately we're able to sell those portfolios at a higher multiple than you would for sell, you know, just getting like one, say $5 million property. A larger institution is willing to buy say a 20, 30, $50 million portfolio at a higher multiple that has that team in place. Right. Yeah. I had a friend who was on the show a couple of years ago and he does hotels. So same thing with the whole like operational play, he does hotels and the exit strategy was to sell to a large REIT over in Singapore. So they were able to have that nice exit. And I was like, dang, that's, that's pretty cool. Is there a reason why, do you guys do hotels? <laughs> I don't know. You, you're either listening on my calls or, uh, but um, you know, so here, here's the thing. Again, I think you need to look at the real estate cycles. Hotels got smashed, right? Over the past couple of years. 
got smashed, right? So there's definitely some opportunities out there. And as multifamily has performed so well, you know, we've looked at some of these other opportunities and built teams out around. And, you know, hotels is definitely something on our target list as well. Okay, very nice. Now, another thing you mentioned was team building. You said it's very important to have good teams. And I know you're based in like North Carolina, but I'm assuming you invest everywhere, right? You invest here in Texas, you probably invest over in different states. Yep, Texas, Southeast, Colorado, absolutely. So how do you go about building teams? Yeah, so teams, you know, building teams, it's about having the right people in the right job, okay? So um, Strategic Coach is a group I'm a part of, and Dan Sullivan, who founded it, he talks about something called unique ability. So the key is you have to identify the roles that you need for everything, okay? So, I mean, let's use the operating room, okay? Since, you know, we're talking about real estate, but we'll use an analogy to do that. Because, you know, people know it's like, okay, you have a property manager. But you have the surgeon, right? But then you have the nurse in the room. You know, most people don't know you have a, a lot of times for a surgery, a, a medical device rep that's in there providing service to make sure the right equipment's in the room, training for the surgical tech. You have the anesthesiologist that's up there at the bed. Um, you have somebody that's coming in kind of as an assistant to bring in you know, different drugs and supplies and, and all these things. And then you probably have like um, a physician assistant or nurse practitioner that's also assisting the surgeon. So you're talking about a half a dozen to maybe a dozen total people in an operating room for one procedure. It's pretty impressive. Um, there's a lot of technology that's involved now as well. Not all those people do the job of the surgeon, right? There's the team that's built out around them. So the number one thing you need is you need to find people that have the right skill set. And, and enjoy that, you know, they, they do that. So, you know, for instance, we have our, our capital markets team, we have our financial team, right? So we look for the best people for those roles that also see the vision of the company. And we build out the team around that. For our car wash, you need operations, right? So you need a strong operations person. So the person leading our car wash has a strong operations background. He actually came from a manufacturing background running that facility because you have you know, very high level understanding from the engineering aspect, the mechanical aspect and running a team around that. And then just like in the OR, you have the surgeon at the top. And then as you go down, there are people that have maybe less experience that are in a lower role. So at a property level, you may have a property manager that's just getting started, that's working their way up, that wants to be up there. But, you know, you want somebody that can come in that has a hard work ethic. They have intelligence. They have integrity. So they're going to be able to do these things. And again, how do we find these people? A lot of times it's like we're talking about how do you find good sponsors? It's referrals and it's also having a very in-place system so you can go through and figure out, okay, are these people exhibiting the traits in a consistent basis? And can they do that in the team as well? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess my question is more directed towards since you are so nationwide, right? It's not just local to your area. You need to find a whole operations team for your property in Texas or in a different state, right? So how do you go about finding those like physical boots and ground teammates? Gotcha. 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 Yeah. So yeah, great question. So yeah, leadership is spread out. Although my main partners that I work with, all the GPs are in, in North or South Carolina. So we're very, we're like two hours to maybe four hours away from each other here. But yeah, so we typically are working with third party management that operates at each property. So we find best-in-class operators that we can bring on board. So for our apartments, for instance, we work mainly with one group and we have a regional manager that oversees that and they place the staff on site for that. For self-storage, 
it's a little different because it's not as heavy on the management side. You can use more technology. People don't expect there to be a full-time manager there all the time, all day long, but it's very similar. And then the mobile home is probably the most complex, in my opinion, aside from car wash. And that's because you know we're buying properties that have a lot of upside, but there's kind of, you might say, a lot of hair on the deals. So you know, the property we just bought towards the end of last year in South Carolina, we have on-site live, like live-in property management that is doing work there, that's picking up trash, you know, cleaning up the place every day. And obviously that's a very different management team than a property manager that's managing, you know, a brand new luxury property in Fort Myers, Florida, where the average resident is making over a hundred thousand dollars. Very cool. Well, Chris, it was great having you on the podcast today. Can you tell our listeners again how they can find your book and how they can find more about you? Yeah. So you can check us out at nextlevelincome.com. You get a free copy of my book there. You can check out episodes of my podcast there, including you coming up here soon, Sean, um, as well as our blog. And like I mentioned, if you want to learn about our coaching and other things, you can also email me at chris at nextlevelincome.com. Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Ah, Likewise, Sean. Thanks so much. Great to see you. You too. All right. I hope you like this episode. You can find the show notes with all the links on our site, everythingrei.com. If you like the podcast, please help us grow by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and telling your friends to listen as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.